you got a Bible where you're at, turn with me to Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark together. Uh, we'll break next week for Palm Sunday and then the next week for Easter Sunday and then resume it once again as we continue to work our way through Mark's Gospel, taking a look at the person of Jesus, who He is, what He's done, and what, how we ought respond to Him. And so this morning we find ourselves in Mark 6. We'll pick up in verse 7 and read down through verse 30 together. The words should be there on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you or in your home this morning to follow along. But in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7, we read this. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she, and she said, the head of John the Baptist. And he, she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Now, I... I don't know about you, but whenever I was growing up in high school, um, I played a little bit of high school sports, played a little baseball, track, cross country. And in every sport that you might play in high school, there's always uh, typically a freshman team, a junior varsity team, and a varsity team. In other words, there are different levels of ability at which people are able to perform. And so they slot them in different teams as their level progresses further on. 
And listen, so essentially what you had was you had the varsity competing at the highest level, then you had junior varsity individuals who were competing at a lesser level on the freshman team. Well, they were freshmen in high school. Uh, but when you think of that type of an arrangement, there are many people who make this false distinction within American Christianity between what they would see to be varsity Christians and junior varsity Christians. In other words, varsity Christians are those who really, really serve Jesus, and junior varsity Christians are those who, yeah, maybe they prayed a prayer whenever they walked an aisle as a child, but they've never really taken steps to follow Jesus, and they've never really taken steps to obey Jesus or to serve Jesus. But it would seem within the Scriptures that the Bible does not make a distinction between these different levels or strata of Christians, but that for someone who is a Christian, they are a disciple. They're a follower of Jesus. There isn't a distinction between those who are at this level and those who are at this level, that we're all called to follow Jesus and engage in the very mission that Jesus had whenever He came to this earth. And so we find in this particular text, in, in Mark's Gospel, uh, this, as the story continues to unfold for us, we find this snapshot of what uh, the commission that Jesus gives to every disciple and every generation, and we find the cost that it requires of every disciple as they follow after Jesus. In other words, here's the commission Jesus gives, and if we're going to follow that, here's what it's going to cost us in our lives. And so that's what we want to look at this morning as we look at this text together and consider what the activity or the commission of discipleship looks like, what disciples do, what they should expect as they do it, and then what it, what they sh- what's it, what it requires of them and where they get the resources to do it. So what do they do? What they should expect when they do it, what it requires of them, and where they get the resources to go about doing that. So let's take a look at these things as we look at this text this morning. First of all, what is it that disciples do? Whether they remember, there's no, there's, we don't flatten this whole issue out. There's no distinctions between levels of Christians. You can't have a type of Christian who does one thing and a type of Christian who does other things. No, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple, and you're called to both preach repentance and participate in renewal. Look at the text with me. First of all, let's take this. Let's take the first one first. Preach repentance in verse twelve. We read that when the twelve went out from Jesus, they proclaimed that people should repent. So their message as they went out, when Jesus commissions them and sends them out into the community, they go out preaching that people that they encounter, that they ought to repent. Now what is repentance? Repentance essentially is this. It is an about face. It is a change of direction. So essentially, if I'm walking north, then I turn 180 degrees and I walk south. If I'm walking east, I turn 180 degrees and I walk west. It's a change of direction that starts with a change of mind. In other words, I'm changing my mind about who it is that is running my life and who it is that's ruling my life. That's what repentance is. It's acknowledging that I am no longer running my life. I'm no longer ruling my life. I'm no longer sitting on the throne of my life. And I no longer occupy the head or the chair at the head of the boardroom table as the CEO who's running my life. Okay, that's that's I'm I'm changing my mind about that. And therefore, I'm changing directions So it's a change of mind that leads to a change in action in my life. 
That's what repentance is, an about face that begins with a change of mind that leads to a change in actions and behaviors in my life. And listen, this idea of repentance is central to the message of the gospel throughout the New Testament. Let me give you one other place that it shows up. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, finds himself in Athens. And in Athens, he is eventually brought into the Areopagus, which is a place where all kinds of ideas, philosophies, belief systems, worldviews, they were debated amongst the philosophers of Paul's day. And so when Paul finds himself in the Areopagus, in verse 22, it says this, as he stood in the midst of all these philosophers, he says this, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. In other words, they want to cover all their bases. This, he says, what you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord in heaven of earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on, the, to live, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet He is not actually far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. And then listen to what He says in verses 29 and following. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Paul says this. He says that God... that, 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 that all the idolatry that he saw there in Athens... He says, I'm going to take this unknown idol, this statue, this altar, this unknown God that you're worshiping. I'm going to tell you who this unknown God that you're reaching out for actually is. He's the God who made everything out of nothing. He's the God who needs nothing from us but gives everything to us. He's the God who formed you in whom you have your being right now. He has ordered your days And in the former days, he says, he overlooked the times of ignorance in which he had not fully revealed himself as he has now done in Jesus Christ. But since the revelation of Jesus Christ, he says, he is now commanding all peoples in all places at all times to repent, to change their mind about who they are, who God is. They're no longer running and ruling their life. And so they're changing their actions. They're changing their direction because God has established a day, Paul says, in which he would judge the world and he would judge them by the one whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus himself. And he would judge them in righteousness, he says. In other words, not what you think is righteousness, not what I perceive to be righteousness, but what God has determined is righteous. He would judge according to His righteousness, not ours. 
And he has shown that he would do that by raising Jesus, the righteous one, from the dead. So listen, this is central to the gospel message. The gospel message in the New Testament is not this. It is not God loves you and has a phenomenal plan for your life. Okay? The gospel in the New Testament is this. Is that God made the world and everything in it and He made it all good. And that humanity, our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, sinned. And when sin entered the world, it spread like a disease into all of humanity and all of their posterity. And every man, woman, and child has been born with this broken sin nature that now wants to rebel against God and run and rule their own life and determine for themselves what is right. And as a result, we all stand under God's just judgment. We stand under His condemnation. And yet God, out of His grace and mercy, did not leave us there, but provided a substitute, a Savior, one who would be sinless, Jesus Christ, who would be born into this world by a virgin, who would live the perfect sinless life that we could not live, who would die as a substitute for us and bear in His body the punishment for our sins at the cross, who would experience God the Father turning His back upon Him as He cries out to Him on the cross, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? So that as He lays His life down for us and, every, and is raised from the grave, that everyone who repents, who turns from running and ruling their own life and places their faith and trust in Him, in what He has done for them, not what they can do for Him, that they would know what it means to have the fullness of a relationship with God and be saved from God's judgment and God's eternal punishment. That is the gospel message in the New Testament. Not God loves you and has a great plan for your life. Okay? And a part central to that gospel message is this idea of repentance. Now listen, it's been said by people much wiser than I that soft words will produce hard people, while hard words will produce soft people. In other words, if you receive a steady diet of teaching and preaching that is essentially coddling you, then eventually your heart's going to be hardened to the realities of sin in your life. But if you have people in your life who love you enough to say hard things to you, then eventually that's going to break down the, the hardness and create a soft heart, a malleable heart, one that is fertile and fruitful. Now listen, there's a difference between hard words and angry words. I'm not talking about uh, uh, hellfire and brimstone, people on soapboxes and street corners calling down fire and judgment upon you. That's not what I'm talking about because of your sin. But hard words, hard words that reveal the thoughts of our minds, hard words that reveal the motivations of our hearts, hard words that call us to account for our actions. Those are the kinds of hard words of repentance that these 12 went out preaching into their communities and that disciples of Jesus today do the same. Listen, let me see if I can break it down for you this way. Listen, I remember between the summer between my senior year in high school and my freshman year in college, I worked for a general contractor in our community. 
And as a part of that, we went around doing remodels on some homes. And there was one particular home that we uh, had been contracted to replace the siding and put some vinyl siding upon this, this particular home. And so as we, we, we showed up and we began the demo process of pulling all the old siding off. And as we pulled all the old siding off, what we discovered is that underneath... Right? There was some of the framing, and this was the old pier and beam foundation, and so it rested upon these concrete pillars and these large foundational beams that ran the length of the house that supported the weight of the structure. And some of the framing and some of those foundational beams had begun to rot. And so we had a choice. We could either slap some vinyl siding over top and call it a day, or we could address the problems under the surface by replacing the rotten framing, replacing the rotten foundation so that that house could stand for years to come. So we had to jack the house up on these house jacks. And because I was the youngest and thinnest at the time, okay, I was voluntold to climb under the house while I was on these house jacks, cut out this foundational beam, knock it out of place and replace it and get it all tied in and secure again. It's a little scary, but I'm standing here today. We also found places where the old clay sewer lines had begun to bust in the back of the house. We had to dig those all the way down to the city sewer main and replace all of those lines. It was a nasty, dirty job. It was hard work, but it was necessary work. Because had we just thrown vinyl siding on top, that house would no longer be standing. And listen, church. Listen, without hard words that are like that hard work of getting to the foundation, listen, you can slap a few coats of paint over top of your life, but it will still continue to crumble underneath because nothing, nothing other than hard words, words that call us to repentance, can address the thoughts of our mind, the motivational structures of our heart, the foundation of our lives. It'd be like going into a doctor right now and with, with multiple arteries around your heart clogged and needing a quadruple bypass and the doctor saying to you the way he's going to address it is with a nose job and a tummy tuck. Right? That's not going, in fact, that's not going to be helpful. It's going to be harmful to you in the long run. Right? While we all need encouragement, we all need comfort, we all need consolation, the scriptures do bring those to us, but they also bring us hard words that call us to repentance. So disciples of Jesus, they practice repentance and they preach repentance. But second of all, listen, they participate in renewal. Notice in verse 13, we read that not only were they preaching repentance, but they were also casting out many demons and anointing with oil, many who were sick and they were healing them. Now we saw this earlier in Mark's gospel as well. But that Jesus had commissioned his disciples to do what he had been doing. Jesus had been preaching and healing and delivering. Now the disciples were sent out to preach and heal and deliver, to do the very same thing. Now this renewal that Jesus brings in his first arrival, in his incarnation, listen, it's like a trailer for the renewal that he's going to bring whenever he returns in his second advent. Okay, Whenever he returns... To, to, for, for that day of judgment and re, to renew all things. Now listen, I know there's not any of us who are going to the movies right now. You may be watching a lot of movies at home, but not in a theater. But when you show up in the theaters again, you're going to see trailers. You're going to see previews for all these movies that are going to be released at a future date. That's what a trailer is. 
You might find them on the internet right now for movies that you anticipate watching in the fall, whenever they may be released, or whenever this, 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 this stay-at-home order gets lifted for us. But essentially, their trailers are previews of things that are coming in the future. And listen, in Jesus' incarnation, as He heals people, as He delivers people, as He sets them free from bondage, as He begins to restore their life and piece them back together, Listen, it is a trailer. In part, it is a trailer, a preview of what's coming at the end of this age when He returns to make all things new. And we find a picture of that in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 5, when John says, He saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. He saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice, John says, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Not just some things new at the end of the age, but all things new. There'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more suffering, no more sickness at the end of the age. When Jesus returns, listen church, there will be a never-ending happy ending in His second advent when He arrives to make all things new. Listen, in that day, In that day will be the eradication of cancer. There will be no more pandemics. The flu, COVID-19 will be eradicated from the face of the earth. When He returns, He's going to bring justice to every crime that has ever been committed. He's going to bring truth to, to, to overthrow every lie that has ever been told. We'll no longer have to lock doors. We'll no longer be afraid of abusive People will no longer have hunger in the world. There'll be no longer be natural disasters. There'll be no more need for police officers, paramedics, and physicians. Okay, They'll all be laid off but provided for with the eternal riches of God the Father Himself. Listen, that is going to be a good day. And in Jesus' first advent, all of the healing, all of the delivering, all of the renewing that He did was a preview of all that will be done when He comes back again. And so if preaching repentance is a part of this gospel declaration, then participating in renewal is a part of, listen, gospel demonstration. Now, while the gospel is not God loves you and has a great plan for your life, let me say it very clearly. The gospel is also not partner with God to go make the world a better place. It's not that either. And yet, church, listen, when you've truly tasted of the kindness of God in the person of Jesus Christ, when you've truly tasted of God's grace and His mercy that's been bestowed upon you by faith, You've repented from running and ruling your own life and you've trusted in what God has done in Christ for you, not what you can do for Him. That is not the gospel. Not what you can do for God, but what He has done for you. Okay? 
when you have truly tasted of that and God begins to set you free from things that you thought you would be bound by for the rest of your life, when He begins to bind up wounds that you thought would fester until the day that you died, when He begins to renew things that you had given up on, when that begins to happen in your life, then you want the world to know about it, and you want them to get in on it as well because you want them to be free, you want them to be healed, and you want them to be renewed too. And so you begin to participate in this renewal as you anticipate the great renewal that's coming at the end of the age. So you begin to live in the present in light of the future so that you become essentially a part of the preview or the trailer for what is to come. And listen, church, I just want to say this to you right now, that in this particular season that we find ourselves in, at this juncture of human history, we have a unique opportunity to participate in renewal. You may be saying, listen, I'm at home on lockdown right now. I'm at stay-at-home orders. Listen, you are. So am I. But at some point, those are going to be lifted. And even in the midst of those, you can still care for people. Let me give you several ways. First of all, you can participate in this renewal through compassion. Compassion. You know what the word compassion literally means in the Scriptures? It means to be moved within your bowels, okay, to feel something down deep for the situation and the needs of others that would drive you to action, that you would care for them. Listen, there are people around the globe, people in our land, people in our own community who are suffering. They're suffering the loss of jobs. They're suffering the loss of their health. And I wonder, I, I, listen, I have been called on account to this myself this week. Of thinking too lightly about the situation that some people find themselves in. I wonder how many of us are moved deeply within to feel with and for those whose lives have been turned upside down right now. And listen, we live in a land, many of us do. We're not living in a third world country. We're not in a township somewhere in South Africa without running water and without electricity and without uh, central air and heat or some kind of temperature control within our... Listen, we live a very comfortable life, but there are those in our land right now whose lives have been flipped upside down, and I wonder the degree to which we actually have compassion for them rather than saying, when, when, can, I, when, when can my kids go on a play date again? I wonder the degree of compassion that truly is being born in our lives in the midst of this time. Second of all, we can do it not only through compassion, but also through provision. Provision. Listen, there, there are going to be all kinds of financial needs that are going to begin to bubble up around us over the course of the next month or two. And I just want to let you know, church, uh, that one of the things that one of the steps we've taken as a congregation um, is we went to our, our landlords, we went to the owners of Highview and asked for a suspension of our rent for the month of April. And they graciously agreed to do that so that we could free up funds to help allocate toward benevolence. And so I want to say to you as a church, if you have a need in your life, we want to help lean into that in any way that we can. 
to participate in renewal and re the relieving of the suffering that you may be undergoing as a consequence of living in this broken, sin-stained, fallen world. If you've lost your job, we want to lean into that. But not only in your life, but if you become aware of needs in the lives of those in your neighborhood, of others in your family, we want to pray for them, yes, but we also want to help provide whatever we can to help alleviate those needs. And let me say a caveat to that. A part of this provision, our elders have agreed that we're going to hold the line on our benevolence policy at this point, which means this, that our benevolence policy is $250 per family per year. Now, it doesn't sound like much, but listen, we are not a very large congregation. So if you want to give to help increase that, you can give on our website to meet the need, that designation, and 100% of those contributions will go to benevolence to help serving families who are in need in our community. But right now, we, we're, listen, we're not able to make payroll for small businesses. We may not be able to pay mortgages, but we can help put food on the table for families who may go without. We can do that through Walmart gift cards, uh, Kroger gift cards, through grocery store gift cards. We can also help maybe pay an electric bill or a water bill, help provide for people in their time of need. And listen, not only can we do that as a body or a congregation, but you can also do that individually as you're aware of needs around you, and you can lean into those personally. But third, we also can do this through intercession, by praying for the needs. Listen, listen. we at this time, I want to encourage you to pray prayers that are bold, that are big, that you, 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 you can't even imagine how God might answer and what God might do in response to them. And listen, I want to encourage you to do that not only by yourself in your homes, but do that with us on Wednesday nights as we gather each Wednesday to pray together virtually online. So we can do it by compassion, we can do it through provision, and we can do it through intercession. This participation in renewal. Seeing people provided for, cared for, prayed for loved in the midst of this time to see the effects of living in this sin-stained, marred, fallen world begin to be overthrown as the church lives in the present age as a trailer for the age that is to come and participate in the renewal that only Jesus is able to bring in their lives. So, it's what followers of Jesus do, right? They preach repentance and they participate in renewal. But what should we expect as we do that? And Jesus is very, very clear here. He says, some will reject, receive you and some will reject you. You expect two responses, Jesus says. In verse, verses 10 and 11, he says this. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, assuming some will receive you, but if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. See, Jesus says, whenever you are faithful to this commission that I've given to preach repentance and simultaneously participate in renewal. So there's gospel declaration, gospel demonstration. So you're preaching the gospel to people and then you're living out its implications in your life. There's ultimately going to be some people who are going to applaud you and some people who are going to assault you. There are going to be people who pat you on the back and people who punch you in the mouth. 
both and are going to happen as you live faithfully as a follower of Jesus. And this should be the expectation of everyone who puts their feet on the path of discipleship and comes after Christ. Now, there's this expression here in the text that's a little bit foreign to us, this idea of shaking the dust off your feet if somebody rejects you. It's a very, very pointed expression in Jesus' day. Jesus was saying this to his disciples. He was essentially telling them to declare that Jewish village to be a heathen or a pagan village. Listen, for any good Jew in Jesus' day, if they traveled outside the land of Palestine, whenever they returned into the land, they were to shake off the dust that they had accumulated from the surrounding regions, from the surrounding lands, so as not to pollute or contaminate the holy land. And so essentially, here's what Jesus is telling them. that They ought to treat these individuals, these Jewish towns, these Jewish villages, these Jewish households as if they are Gentiles. In other words, not a part of God's covenant people. So what Jesus is doing is he's eliminating the presumption of salvation on the basis of their ethnicity, of their nationality, or of their race. And Jesus is saying, listen, even in the promised land, there are going to be people who don't receive the promised one. So shake the dust off. Shake the dust off as you leave. And so listen, church, let me say a quick word about how that might apply to us in our day. It should not shock us when people reject the message of repentance in America. Because listen, being a Christian is not the birthright of every American, right? Being an American doesn't make you a Christian. Being a Texan doesn't make you a Christian, okay? Being born here does not make you a Christian. You must be born again, must be born again by a work of God in your soul to bring you to life from the dead. So listen, we tend to think of America as this Christian nation, but it is not a birthright of every American to be a Christian. Okay? So even within our nation, some will receive us, some will reject us as we preach repentance and participate in this renewal. And so if we're going to do it in the midst of a mixed reviews, and mixed receptions, what does it take from us? Here's what I think Mark is trying to communicate to us. What it takes from us is this, is a dying to our self-serving agendas. That if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to die to your own self-serving agenda. You're like, well, where do you get that from? Listen, in between the sending and returning of the twelve, we have this story of Herod and John the Baptist. Now, it seems a little odd Okay, that Mark would place this story where he does in the middle of the sending and the returning of the apostles. Yet he places it here for, I think, a theological reason to say something to his audience about what it costs to follow Jesus. What it costs to preach repentance in a world where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Mark is saying this, that some will receive you, some will reject you, and listen, some, some will kill you. Some will take your life. And Mark is saying to us, listen, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to preach repentance, participate in renewal, you must, be, you must come to terms with John's fate. The reason being, listen, even if you don't physically lose your life, you're going to have to be willing to die every single day to live out this commission that Jesus has given us. 
See, consider this with me. If John had been trying to save his life, he would not have been confronting and calling Herod to repent. See, the, the, here's the story, right? John the Baptist shows up in Herod's presence, and Herod had decided that he was attracted to his brother's wife, so he takes her for himself, and John is calling Herod on the carpet with regards to that decision. John's calling him to repentance. He's confronting Herod. So Herod throws him into jail. And, and so Herodias, John, or Herod's now wife, who was once married to his brother, right, essentially d- d- develops this, we're told in the text, a grudge against John and wants to kill him. But John, or, or Herod's fascinated by John. He's perplexed by John. We may come back and deal with that at a later time. But listen, there's a lot there to learn from that. But here's what I want you to see today is that she has it out for John and she finds her window of opportunity when her daughter dances at Herod's birthday party. And Herod is so pleased by her performance that he says, I will give you anything you ask for up to half of my kingdom. And so she goes back and consults with her mom and her mom says, tell him you want John the Baptist's head. And so she goes in, relays that message, and Herod, to save face in front of all of his friends who are gathered there on his birthday, he sends an executioner to behead John and brings it out on a platter. See, had John been trying to save his life, he would have remained silent, or he might have even blessed what God had forbidden. See, God had forbidden this, and yet John's not there blessing it. Or oh, he wanted to remain silent. Just say, hey, listen, I, 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 who am I to judge, right? What is right and wrong? Or how you're going to conduct your life, Herod. But he's not. He's calling him to repentance and ultimately it leads to his own death. See, the, John understood this, that when Jesus arrives on the scene, when he arrives in human history in John chapter 3, John says this. He says, listen, I must decrease He must increase. In other words, my agenda must recede into the background. His agenda must ascend into the foreground. I'm His servant. He is not my servant. That's what John says in John chapter 3. The mindset that John has is that he would be one who would take up his cross daily and serve Jesus instead of himself. And this is what it means. This This is the kind of mindset you and I need if we're going to fulfill this commission that Jesus has given us of preaching and participating. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Nazi Germany during World War II. And listen, he um, led a resistance movement, underground resistance movement against uh, the Nazi regime. Uh, And so he is one who knows well what it is to lose his life for the sake of serving Jesus. And listen to what he says in a book called The Cost of Discipleship. He says, The cross is laid on every Christian. It begins with a call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of the encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with His death. We give over our lives to death. Since this happens at the beginning of the Christian life, the cross can never merely be a tragic end to an otherwise happy religious life. When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. That is the call of Jesus to every person who would consider 
following Him, to every person who would consider placing their faith in Him, that you're dying to your own merits of saying, God, you should accept me because of all the good that I've done. You're dying to that way of approaching God. You're dying to using God as a genie, right, to give you all the things that you want in life to fulfill your agenda to serve you. And you're saying, no, I'm going to die to that and I'm going to live to serve God. So when we come to Him, we don't come to Him saying, I'm going to use God to serve my agenda, but I'm going to die to my agenda and I'm going to serve His. That's the call that Christ lays upon every person, every man, every woman, every child who would come after Him. Every single one of us. And you say, that sounds hard. It sounds hard. It sounds difficult. It sounds like death. But let me just say something in response to that. Listen, every single one of us is dying every single day, one way or the other. We're either, we're either committing spiritual suicide in our lives, right? So we're either killing ourselves or we're dying to ourselves, Listen to, listen to the difference. Listen, if you are one who is slowly killing yourself, what you find is that your life is slowly slipping away as you spend it on me, myself, and I. You find your soul to be withering as you spend all of your resources on yourself. You refuse to embrace God's purpose for your life. You refuse to give Him glory and rather want to keep it all for yourself. All right? You're inhaling the toxic carbon monoxide of self out of convenience and comfort. And if so, you listen, you're slowly committing soul suicide. You don't even realize it. You're creating a cradle of comfort for yourself where everything God must be must agree with you or you don't submit to Him if it doesn't agree with you. Your sensibilities, your understandings, what makes you comfortable and what is convenient. If that is the mindset of your life, listen, I want you to know you're slowly killing yourself day by day by day. On the other hand, you can slowly die to yourself every day, losing your life for Jesus' sake and finding a more abundant and free and full life. Your soul would be healing even as your body begins to break down. As you embrace God's purpose for your life of giving Him glory and not keeping it for yourself, as you engage others intentionally for their good, you're inhaling oxygen of siding with Jesus against yourself, even when it's uncomfortable and inconvenient. And as such, you're slowly becoming more and more human and finding the joy of what life was intended to be, church. Listen, you're one way or the other, one way or the other, you're dying every day. Are you killing yourself or are you dying to yourself? It's one or the other. There is no third option. And so listen, if you're going to follow Jesus and respond to this commission that He's given, you've got to die to your self-serving agendas by saying no to yourself. If you think of it this way, some of us have our yes to God, right, capped off. And we say, God, here is the boundary marker of what I will say yes to this far and no further. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you're going to come after me, you've got to uncap your yes to me. You've got to uncap it so that whatever I call you, wherever I lead you, you would say yes and respond in faith that where I'm leading you is better than where you are now. 
dying to your self-serving agenda. But then second of all, second of all, where do we get the resources to do this? Listen, let me leave you with this. We've got to depend on the one who sent us. Depend on the one who sent you. Listen, in verses 8 and 9, we see the provisions that Jesus allows them to take as he sends them out. And I find this fascinating. In verse 8, he says, He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. In other words, he says, don't overload yourself. Don't take too much with you. And I believe the reason Jesus says this is because he wants them to take the barest of essentials to ensure that they place their trust not in their supplies or their sufficiency or their training, but to place their trust in the one who sent them. In other words, not to place their trust in their resources, not in their intelligence or their ingenuity or their cash flow, but to place their trust in the provision of the one who is sending them out. It would be like laying out everything that you would pack in order to go on an extended journey today, right? to take a trip for a week or two, laying it all out and then going, I'm just going to take my toothbrush and my coat. That's all I'm going to take with me. Jesus says, in fact, don't take two coats, just one coat, okay? Right? And, and so there's a minimal amount of resources Jesus sends them out with to ensure they wouldn't place their trust in their provisions or in their resources, but in the God who was sending them, in their Messiah who was commissioning them, in the one who, was, who, had, who, had, who, who, had, who had given them authority, that their trust would be in Him. Let me see if I can break it down for you this way. I was watching yesterday as my kids were outside. A very windy day yesterday on Saturday. They were outside flying kites. Before you ask, yes, they were six feet apart from everyone else who was outside. Okay, so they're six feet apart. Their kites were, they were way up in the sky because what they, what they learned about midway through the day is that if you took the regular kite string off and tied lightweight fishing line onto the kite, okay, then you've got like 300 yards on that fishing line spool to send the kite 900 feet up into the air. And I believe they about reached that, okay? So their kites were way up into the air. There was a small, like, single prop plane that was flying overhead at the time. I was afraid that the kite was going to get stuck in the propeller because they didn't see it. It was that high up into the air. But that kite was soaring up in the air. Then you had other kids on the street, who once again were six feet spread apart. They were running up and down the street, like running as fast as they could, holding the kite behind them, trying to make it rise up into the sky, rather than using the wind that was blowing to lift it and make it soar. Listen, what I was reminded of in that moment as I watched all this unfolding before me was this, is that without the wind, the kite is just a cheap $2 piece of plastic that can do nothing in of itself but lie on the ground. And yet when the wind blows, that kite can soar to heights unimaginable because there is something other than itself that is producing, that is lifting, that is carrying, that is causing it to be fruitful and function the way that it was designed and intended to function. If you've ever tried to make a kite fly without the wind, you know it's exhausting as you run up and down the street trying to make it take off, trying to create lift. But when the wind blows... 
you know how fulfilling it can be to stand there and really feel like at no effort of your own at all, this thing is soaring. Listen, I want you to know, church, that when Jesus commissions us, He does not commission us to say, go outside, running up and down the street with your kite behind you, trying to make something happen. Rather, He says, listen, listen, it's not about your effort. It's not about your energy. It's not about your ingenuity. It's not about your cash flow. It's not about your intellect. It's about the resources that I will provide for you if you depend on me, not on them, not on them. Listen, this is why you hear story after story from other parts of the globe in which financially resources are nowhere near as prevalent as they are in the states of God moving in massive ways. People coming to faith in Christ. Villages being saved. Lives being renewed. And I cannot help but wonder if a part of the reason it's happening there, but sometimes not happening here, is because we're placing more trust in our resources than the one who sent us. Listen, I, I, I was reminded of a story of, uh, several months back uh, before all of the COVID-19 cases began to ramp up. In fact, right, right before it was first discovered, I had the opportunity to travel with uh, uh, Keith West, one of our church members and the founder of Latitude GLC. And we went over to South Africa doing some equipping of interns over there and investing in their life and training, graduating them from the program, teaching and, and spending time with them. And as a part of the conversations that were circulating about next year's plans for Latitude, I can remember us having conversations with Keith about financial provisions that were not in the bank, but desires and plans to do things that he didn't currently have the resources to do, right? To foster more interns, to help hire an in-country director on the ground in South Africa in partnership with the local church that was there. But those resources were not available. And yet, by faith, he took a step forward to, to move in that direction. I can remember us sitting at a restaurant, following the trip as we were debriefing and him receiving notice on his phone that a donor had just contributed half of what he needed in order to make that a reality. And then in the first quarter of this year, another donor contributed the other half of what was needed in order to make that reality because he had stepped forward in faith, believing that this is where God's leading. Even if I don't have the resources to see it becoming reality right now, this is what God's leading me to do. So I'm going to give myself to it. I'm going to give this organization to it. And God showed up and provided the resources that were necessary as he took a step of faith. See, a part of depending upon the one who sent us is going where Jesus sends despite a shortfall of resources and unanswered questions of how's this going to work? What's this going to look like? Where are the resources? Where are the people going to come from? I don't know, but this is where he's leading. So I'm going to take a step. Listen, church, when Jesus commissions us to preach repentance and participate in renewal, there will be some who will receive us, some who will reject us. That should not shock or surprise anyone. And if we're going to lean into that commission as a follower of Jesus, we've got to learn to die to our self-serving agendas and then depend on Him to provide what we need when we need it 
as we move forward to serve the community that God's planted us in, as we aim to live as followers of Christ in this, in, in, in this particular time. And so listen, as you have opportunity, I want to encourage you, maybe for some of you tuning in right now, maybe for some of you this time of inactivity for you would be a time to, to take stock in your own life. Maybe if you're watching today, and maybe this is the first time you've watched a church service in a long time, or watched a sermon in, in a long time, or heard the Word of God in many, 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 many years, and maybe God has prompted something within you. Listen, let me encourage you not to rest until you pray through what it would look like for you to practice repentance, to turn from running and ruling your own life, to die to your own agenda, and to depend upon the fact that God's going to resource you to do what He calls you to do wherever He sends you to do it. And we as a church, may we take steps of faith in this juncture as well, to help to demonstrate compassion, to take steps of provision, and to be those who would participate in intercession for those who are hurting around us. And we pray for us. Father, we thank you so much that though there are not distinctions between the types of calls you place on people who would come after and follow you. That we're all called to discipleship. There is none who's called to a freshman or JV kind of Christian experience, but we're all called. We're all called to that varsity Christian experience of being disciples, formed into the image of your Son as we respond to the gospel message that calls us to repentance of sin, trusting in the one who was our substitute, and then to participate as a trailer for the age to come in the renewal of broken lives and broken cultures. And Father, I pray that as we do that as a church, through provision and through compassion and through intercession, through calling people, to turn from running and ruling their own lives, to submitting themselves to You, because they know one day there's, that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, and it's coming in accordance with what You have deemed to be righteous, not what we think is righteous. As we do that, Father, and some pat us on the back and applaud us, and others would proverbially punch us in the mouth and assault us. Father, may that not come as a shock to us but because we have died to our own agenda, but to our own reputation, to our own desire for men's approval, that we would continue faithfully in this mission and that we would depend daily on the resources that you would provide us by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit who was poured out when Jesus himself was glorified and taken up into heaven. We would depend upon your Holy Spirit to walk this path and to live faithfully as your followers in accordance with your commission as we count the cost, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.